Amen, amen. You may be seated. Praise the Lord. Because indeed, when you surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ, it is then that you are set free. That's what the gospel does and how good and right and beautiful it is to gather as the body of Christ and to lift up the name of Jesus. My name is Kenneth Bruce, and I'm the senior pastor here at Westwood. And if you're a visitor this morning, thank you so much for coming to visit with us. I hope you got a Connect card because in it is a great opportunity for you to connect with our faith family. You can register a prayer request, and you can connect with us as a faith family. We can get you connected into a life group. Uh, if you're watching via live stream, welcome. We're so glad you're with us and taking time to worship the Lord with us. This morning, we are honored to have a very special family with us. This is Doug and Darla Miller. They are missionaries down in Mexico that our church helps support. And I am just so grateful for them and for their ministry. And so what we're going to do is, is what's called four minutes of impact in which we take some time to hear about what the Lord is doing in and through his missionaries all throughout this world. So Doug and Darla, in addition to the Bible, what book has helped you the most? I would think it's Dr. Seuss's book. One fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. And, and the reason I say that is my mom from an early age told me there's some people out there that are a lot different than us all over the world, and all of them need to know about Jesus. Amen. That's good. That's good. Who has encouraged you through hard times, and how did they do it? Um, I would think my mother, basically. Hmm. She, she raised me up to be strong, and she let me go to, to seek what what God wanted us to do and she's encouraged me by being strong herself and and just being there for me. Amen. Amen. You all do a lot of hard work, but what does fun look like for you? Well, my my pastime and my hobby, my passion when I'm not working is surfing. I love to uh, paddle surf and it's really great the old man out there paddle surfing. Is <laughs> That's so good. What is something in the culture that helps you reach the people in Mexico? Um, I think that they have been raised and, and with a belief in the Bible, and they know that the Bible is true. They understand that it's true, but they don't understand what's there inside and the word and relationship of Jesus hmm. that is there for them in the Bible. Yeah. So how do you all stay in touch with your family? Uh, well, thank the Lord for technology because when we first came 20 years ago to Mexico, we didn't have this uh, great technology we do today, but FaceTiming and, and being able to, to be able to talk to your parents and see them, and that's great. Amen. What is one big story that we can all celebrate together? You know, as we... Uh, Many of your teams have come down. They've been building what we call a Bible park. We built a wall around about two and a half acres of land. And one of our high school students from the village, I taught the Bible stories. They didn't know any of the Bible stories. We taught the Bible stories, and they painted them on this wall. And now you're able to take your, your device, your phone, and point it toward the wall and actually hear the story in the Mayan language. Hmm. And this has been an incredible, an incredible experience for us. And God is using that to bring many people to know him. And it's just amazing to see uh, a whole village coming to Christ. Amen. Praise the Lord for that. Oh, well, that's so good. Uh, what is one of your great frustrations that you face on the field? Um, faulty electricity. Mm -hmm. Inconvenience. <laughs> oh, you said just one. Okay. <laughs> 
Yes, a lot of, a lot of conveniences. Uh, what is the greatest hindrance to the gospel there? You know, it, it seems that they have the same hindrances we have here. It's, although they're poor, they still have the love of money, even though they don't have it. And I think that is one of the greatest hindrances. They have a lot of mystical religions, but money is their God for most of the people. Wow. What is one thing that keeps you up at night? Right now, uh, keeping me up at night is hurricane season. We have one headed toward uh, our area of Mexico and one headed toward my parents' home in North Carolina. Be praying about that because that keeps me up. Oh, yeah. How can our church better partner with you? You know, you guys have been, we've had a, a relationship for, for more than 10 years or more than 10 years now. And uh, I would love to see more teams come our way. More, we really have a strategy for bringing more teams to share the gospel and to just share your lives. It's amazing what God's done through the volunteers that have come. If you could continue to send your people, we'd love to have them. Amen. Uh, where can people get more information about your ministry? Global Community Fellowship is the name of our organization. And so gcfmexico.com, gcfmexico.com. You can check it out on the Internet and get in touch with me. Write me an email. I'll tell you all about it. That's so good. Doug and Darla have been married for 37 years, and for two decades, they have been pouring their lives into the unreached people groups amongst the Mayans in Mexico. Now, the Mayans, this Bible park that he has talked about, is uh, they, they have a written language, but most people don't have access to a Bible that they can read. Most of them don't read. And so they have created a way for the orality, the ability to communicate the gospel verbally as the means of sharing the gospel and making disciples and planting churches there. And so I am so thankful for them and for their ministry to so many. And as I was praying this morning that God would continue to use them, even for those who have yet to have been born, they would come to faith in Jesus through the labor of this family. Would you join me in praying with and for this family? Father, I'm just so grateful for Doug and for Darla. Thank you for their love for Jesus. Thank you for their marriage. And I pray, God, you would continue to bless and protect them. Would you use their lives to make Jesus famous amongst those who have yet to believe? And Father, we do pray for generations to come that they would love and follow your son because of the seeds that they plant there amongst the Mayan people. I thank you, God, for Eliseo and his work there as a pastor. And I pray you continue to mature him and grow him as a leader. And I pray, God, that churches would continue to multiply all throughout the community there. God, bless this family. God, continue to give them vision of how to reach more people with the gospel. God, we are so grateful for, Lord, how you are at work all over the world, drawing people to Jesus, and we are so grateful that we get to be a part of it. God, we pray you continue to bless and use this family for your glory. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Can we thank the Lord for this family? I love you guys. Thank you. So grateful for Doug and for Darla, and they're headed off to go speak to some small groups and life groups all throughout our campus. But uh, throughout this fall, we've had opportunities to hear from missionaries from Belize and from Swaziland and Mexico, and then Lord willing, coming up in November, we'll have a family from Uganda that we'll get a chance to hear about what the Lord is doing there. Now, I don't know about you, but I love hard work. I love hard work. I love waking up and looking at my to-do list and seeing all the many things that I have to do for the day, fixing a fence, cutting the grass, writing a sermon. And it's silly how much joy I get crossing off a task when it's completed. 
Even sometimes, I'm not sure if this is true for you, I'll write on my, my, on my list, write a to-do list, and then I'll cross it off, okay? It just, it feels so good to get a task done. And on rare occasions, I will get a chance to look back at my previous week and I'll see that everything has been done that I've set out to accomplish. And I can just look back and say, it is finished. It feels so good. Whether you have a nine to five job, you're a student at school, or you have the 24 hour job of being a parent, hard work is good. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon is teaching us what gospel motivated work ethic actually looks like. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Matthew, excuse me, Proverbs chapter six. Proverbs chapter six. We're going through a sermon series as a faith family called Walk in Wisdom. We're walking through the book of Proverbs and identifying different themes that help us as followers of Jesus know how we can become more faithful. And Solomon, who's the author of this book, is teaching his son how to walk in wisdom. He's giving rich wisdom and practical insight for how believers are to live. And he's coaching up his son on how to become the man of God that God has called him to be. And as I've been studying this book the last several weeks, I'm saying, yes, this is the path I want my kids to walk in. Like, this is the direction I want to see them go. And as I'm teaching and as I'm training my children to walk in wisdom, I've been asking myself, Kenneth, are you becoming more like this? You see, the Holy Spirit, when you begin studying his word, he teaches and he instructs, he corrects, he leads you in righteousness, he rebukes you, and he encourages you to continue to follow hard after Jesus. And he has been continually reminding me of I, that I am in desperate need of the grace of Jesus as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, but just as a Christian. We are always in desperate need of his grace. And what's interesting, Solomon says in chapter one, verse seven, that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. If you want to be wise, it begins with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus is the wisdom of God. He modeled for us how we are to live. And the Holy Spirit, who lives inside of believers, the moment that you believe the gospel, he is the one who teaches you, he points you to Jesus for how you are to live. So when we deny ourselves daily, pick up our cross, and follow Jesus, it is then that we are walking in wisdom. This morning in Proverbs 6, we see Solomon giving his son wisdom and insight on a gospel-motivated work ethic. A gospel-motivated work ethic. That's a call for all believers. But what in the world, Kenneth, are you talking about when you mean gospel-motivated? Well, you see, the gospel says that our good works, our hard work, they are not enough to save they cannot save you on the day of judgment. When you and I stand before the Lord on that great day, our good works will not save. Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine, he says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. 
In fact, the prophet Isaiah says that our good works are like filthy rags. It is impossible for our good works to offset all of the sin and rebellion that we have committed against a holy and perfect God. He will one day judge us. And if you are standing on your own merit, if you are trusting in your good works to save you, you stand condemned already. But God, who is rich in mercy, who loves us so much, he gave us his one and only son, Jesus, who lived the perfect sinless life that we couldn't live. And he died the death that we deserved on the cross. And because of his death, it is through him that we are forgiven of our sins, that we are adopted into God's family, and we have an eternal life that he provides for us. And Jesus was not only crucified on the cross, but on the third day, he got up out that grave. He is alive today. And so those who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus by faith, it is then that you are saved, you're rescued, you're brought into the family of God. You see, your work does not save you on the day of judgment. It's Jesus's work for you. You must grab hold of that. You see, hard work begins by resting in the perfect work of Jesus for you. Please grab hold of that gospel truth. It's essential. Putting your personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it secures eternal life, it adopts you into his family, it provides eternal life and, 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 and forgiveness of sin, but it's essential for you to understand work. You see, the truth of Proverbs 6 that we're about to study here in just a moment, this is going to be like a wet blanket of guilt. You're going to walk out of here with a burden on your shoulders if you don't begin with this gospel truth right here. You see, before we can learn about God's call for a work ethic from his people, we must see how hard work relates to the gospel. You see, we don't work hard for salvation. We work hard from salvation. It's essential that you get this, that you are trusting, you are resting in the finished work of Jesus for you through his death and through his resurrection. You don't work to earn God's love. He already loves you. You don't try to muster up and pull up the boots on trying to earn God's favor. He's already shown you favor through his son. And so as we study what it means to have a gospel-motivated work ethic, it is a call in which we are looking away from ourselves and we are looking to the finished and perfect work of Jesus on our behalf. And once you believe that gospel, once you trust, you bank your eternity upon the finished work of Jesus for you, it is then that you are motivated to go walk in obedience and to walk in wisdom and to work hard for his glory. I want you to see this morning in the text that a gospel-motivated work ethic calls for, number one, hard work. Hard work. Look at verse six. Solomon says, go to the ant, you slacker. Observe its ways and become wise. Solomon here, he's calling out the sluggard. He's calling out the slacker. He's calling out the man or woman who was being lazy. And he does so by pointing to the work ethic of an ant. 
See here, here Solomon, verse six, he's pointing to one of the smallest creatures in all of creation as an object lesson for those who are lazy. Notice the two verbs in verse six. Go and observe. Go and see. And it's then that you will become wise. You increase in wisdom by learning in this life what it means to follow Jesus. You learn from creation around you. And and this this is a principle I want you to grab hold of. Being teachable is essential for you to have a gospel motivated work ethic. Being curious, reading good books, continually being a student of the world around you and how it points to the Lord. This is what makes you better. What we see here is the wisest earthly king in history points to the slacker, verse six, to the ants. Well, what do ants do? Ants work hard. They work together. They are diligent. They are industrious. They build. Not so the slacker. Proverbs 26, 14 says the lazy man lays in bed and turns like a door turning on its hinges. Proverbs 22, verse 13 says the lazy man continually makes excuses. Sleeping too much, making excuses, they are ultimately heart issues. They reflect a me-centered way of thinking that puts self-comfort and self-preservation as priority over service to God and to neighbor. That must never be the case for believers. We go to the end and we work hard. We build buildings. We cut grass. We meet quotas. We teach the next generation. We write books. We put out fires. We run businesses. And we do so not for our fame, but for God's. You see, if you work for the fame of your name, your effort is in vain. And your impact will be temporary. You see, a gospel-motivated work ethic works hard for the glory of God. The grace of Jesus empowers us to work hard for the glory of God, which means in Christ, your work ethic leads you to be excellent at what you do, which means you work hard. You give God your best in all that you do, in the classroom, in the boardroom, in your home on the field, in your shop, in the office. We use our God-given abilities, our God-empowered strength, our God-inspired callings, and we use them as skilled practitioners. As believers, we must be the ones who show up on time. We work harder than anybody else, and we do so with a joyful heart. We're to be the best students, the hardest workers, and the most honest salesman. These are marks of those who belong to Jesus, in which we we give our very best for the Lord. You see, hospitals and schools and communities and businesses, they should be impacted for Jesus because of how you give effort to how you serve those around you. You glorify God through how hard you work and the attitude by which you serve. Hard work glorifies the one who created work. Don't miss this. Work becomes worship when you do it for the glory of God. It means that your worship does not stop here on Sunday mornings. 
Your worship is Monday through Sunday. It is every day. When you, 8 a.m., Monday morning, you go into the office, you go into the classroom, worship is already there because you're doing it for the glory of God. You are laboring, you are sweating, you are being industrious and diligent with the tasks that God has called you to, and it is worship because you do it for his glory, which means you change diapers for the glory of God. You teach for the glory of God. You organize for the glory of God. You program, you study, you practice, you sell for the glory of God. And you honor God when you work hard for his glory. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now we must be careful here. It's easy for us to put our worth, our value, our identity in our work. But you gotta grab hold of this. This is essential, y'all. Your identity is not in how productive you are, but in who Jesus says you are in him. In our culture, we praise hard work. We celebrate being busy. We celebrate not taking vacations. We celebrate sacrificing family for career advancement. But you see, that's not how you're defined. You're not defined by your bottom line. You're not defined by how many sales you have. You're not defined by how obedient your children are. You're not defined by how high your ACT is. You're not defined by how many wins you have or how big your church is. You are defined by Jesus Christ and who he says you are. And since the gospel speaks a better word than any temporary trophy in this world, and since your identity is secure in him, go build something. Go start and finish a task. Go take a mountain. Go do something hard for the glory of God. Go to the ant and learn. Ultimately, go to Jesus, who came to do the work of him who sent him. He came to do the work of the Father, which was perfectly realized through his work in his life, in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. So a gospel-motivated work ethic, it calls for hard work. I want you to see, secondly, that a gospel-motivated work ethic calls for initiative. Look at verse seven. Solomon says, without leader, administrator, or ruler. Solomon here, he is shaming the slacker with the initiative of this insect who, verse seven, does not need a boss to tell it what to do. It doesn't need a a leader, an administrator, or a ruler to motivate it to work hard. The the, the ant just gets to work. It has the, the desire to labor. God put it within the ant to work hard. What about you? Do you take initiative at work? Are you one who, who, who waits for someone to tell you what to do or do you take initiative? You start something. You, you wanna see something that, that is broken become fixed. You become who takes initiative in your home, in our community, in our church. You see a need and you go and meet it. You take the initiative. If we called your boss and we asked, hey, how is this person at work? 
what would they say? Students, if we called your teachers, it said, how good of a worker is this student? What would they say? You see, a mark of faithful followers of Jesus is that we get to work. We take initiative. We labor for the glory of God. No one should have to prod us to take initiative. Why? Well, God is our all-seeing boss who rewards faithfulness. Remember, no matter who signs your paycheck, the Lord Jesus is your ultimate boss. You work for Jesus. The moment you believe the gospel, your boss at work changed. There's a new sheriff in town. There's an ultimate authority that you will answer to. So regardless of accolades or commendations or praise, praise that you get from work, any bonuses or pay raises or extra vacation days, it is the Lord Jesus Christ whom you work for, not for man. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 6. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your hearts. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, he says, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. So where does initiative come from? Where does this desire to start something come from? Well, we see it ultimately starts with God who took initiative at creation. He created something out of nothing. And from eternity past, God saw fit to create the world and he took initiative in making the world in six days. We also see God who gives initiative to Adam of having the responsibility of caring for the garden, naming the animal, animals, exercising dominion over creation. That indeed he is to lead his wife and his family. We see God placing initiative upon the man to lead within the context in which he placed him in the garden. But when Adam fell in the garden, one of the consequences of Adam's sin was that the ground would produce thorns and thistles. Work became painful and difficult. You see, instead of creation working for us, creation is now working against us. This is why it's not easy to farm. It's not easy to sell. It's not easy to organize. It's not easy to run a business. It's not easy to build a church or to start something new. But how rewarding is it when we do take initiative? What we see is that God is who takes initiative calls upon us to be those who step out in faith and we take initiative and we work hard for the glory of God. Thirdly, I want you to see that a gospel-motivated work ethic calls for preparation for the future. Look at verse 8. Solomon says, The ant prepares its provisions in summer. It gathers its food during harvest. You see, without supervision, verse 7, the ant, verse 8, makes preparation for the future. It prepares in summer and it gathers in harvest. Now, if the ant decided to prop its feet up on the desk, 
hands behind his head, watch college football, take it easy and not work hard. When harvest would come, he would have nothing to eat. You see, the fool is the one who plays when he should be working. Solomon here is driving home the truth of preparing for the future in the labor for the sake of the gospel. He preparing for the future is a mark of gospel-motivated work. Imagine what would happen if we did not prepare for the future. If, t- if, the, if the farmer doesn't prepare, people don't eat. If the teacher doesn't prepare, children go untaught. If the engineer does not prepare, industry stops. If the police officer doesn't prepare, evil flourishes. If the doctor doesn't prepare, people die. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 11 says, The one who works his land will have plenty of food, but whoever chases fantasies lacks sense. You see, the ant, verse 8, displays this principle of delayed gratification. Okay, we, we live in a culture in which we, we like to get what we want immediately. We want it now. Hurry up. But we see here, by working hard during the summer, the ant gets to enjoy the benefits later. Babies and toddlers want it now. That's where our culture has become. Our culture mirrors this instant gratification. We want immediate results. We want immediate muscle growth. We want immediate fruit. We want immediate Wi-Fi. We want an immediate road construction completed on I-65. We want immediate results. Hurry up. Get the task done. That's not how God designed the world, is it? Much of what we do, it requires diligence and patience. Parenting takes time. Grandparenting takes time. Building a business takes time. Building a healthy church takes time. And yet we're working to prepare for the future. We labor for the future, which because this is what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing right now. Before his crucifixion in John 14, Jesus said this, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You see, right now, Jesus is preparing the future for you. He will one day set up his new heavens and his new earth. We're gonna see him. We're gonna be with him. We're gonna know him. We're gonna live with him forever. And he will one day reward our labors for him in this life. Therefore, as you prepare for the future, the future doesn't just mean the next 20 years. The future also means the next 20 billion. We're preparing for something that's coming that is beyond understanding, but the scripture tell us is coming. So when we bag groceries, when we send emails, when we paint walls and deliver packages, we're doing valuable work, not just for the good of the community, but also we're preparing to rule and reign in the new kingdom as kings and queens ruling over the cosmos. This is preparing us for the future. Okay, so what is God calling us to do? And here's your impact point. It's this. Get up 
and do work, son. Get up and do work. Verse 9, Solomon writes, How long will you stay in bed, you slacker? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the arms to rest, and your poverty will come like a robber, your need like a bandit. Twice, verse 9, Solomon asks the sluggard how long he will stay in bed. The text seems to indicate that this lazy person has been laying in bed for a long time and his sleep is not only preventing productivity, but verse 11, it leads to poverty. And this poverty will come quickly and unexpectedly like a robber or like a bandit. Therefore, Solomon is warning his son of the danger of laziness. Now, as a dad with five kids, there is no question that I can do chores better than them. When it comes to cutting grass and cleaning toilets and doing the dishes and cleaning up after the dogs and vacuuming the house, if those things were Olympic sports, I would crush them. But that's not the point, is it? The point is to raise kids who love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love their neighbor as himself. We're raising kids by investing in them who will go and impact their world for Jesus. At a very young age, Christy and I began giving children, our children, the responsibility of doing chores throughout the house. Not because we hate them, but because we love them. We want them to realize that this life is not about you. This life is about Jesus and working hard for the good of your neighbor. All the time, I feel like I'm just, I'm reminding them that, hey, leaders are givers, not takers. We live in a culture that is full of people who are just takers. Lazy, sitting, wasting time. Frequently, I remind my kids, God did not make you to play video games. He made you to change the world for Jesus. This life is so short. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Don't waste it. There's work to be done. There's mountains to climb. There are new initiatives to start. And you see, one of the responsibilities that I believe God has placed upon fathers is to drive laziness out of their children. Children are naturally lazy. They received that from their great-grandfather, Adam. So we've got to drive it out of them and give them a gospel-motivated work ethic that they'll work hard for the glory of God. But you see, the Great Commission is at stake here. There are billions of people who have yet to believe the gospel, they have yet to hear the good news of Jesus, and they are headed for a Christless eternity. And while God alone is the one who saves, he uses our work as meager as it is, but he uses it to accomplish his purposes. You know, one of the quotes that's often just rolling around in my heart comes from Robert Moffat. He's a Scottish missionary to South Africa in the 1800s. And he wrote this, many a morning have I stood on the porch of my house and looking northward have seen the smoke arise from villages that have never heard of Jesus Christ. I have seen at different times the smoke of a thousand villages, villages whose people are without Christ, 
without God and without hope in the world. Westwood, if we're going to reach the nations and our neighbors with the gospel, we've got to roll our sleeves up. The task of the Great Commission is essential. God has a heart for the nations and our neighbors. And if we're going to reach the world for Christ, it's going to take all of us. And it's not just mailing it in saying, hey, we're going to let someone else do it. It takes all of us. Everybody using our own unique gifts and talents and where the strategic places where God has placed us in our homes, in our, in our workplaces, in our schools, and we leverage what we have for the sake of the gospel. Because there are billions of people who do not know Jesus. And we need the gospel to go forth. And so God uses the work ethic of his people to advance the mission of the gospel. And this is what we get to do together. And so right where God has placed you in your life, work hard for the glory of God. Rest in the finished work of Jesus and yet let that rest in Christ motivate you to go forth and to get up and to labor, to take initiative, to push back against lostness with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, there's only one who has ever perfectly crossed off his to-do list. And he proves it at the end of his life. And as Jesus is hanging on the cross, his final words are to tell us die. It is finished. The work of Jesus is finished the work of advancing his gospel remains. Let's get to work of making much of him.